Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few minutes of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship spirit be, and that you are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can be here tonight. We're here because of your grace. We have your word because of your grace, and you have given us everything that we need to know in your word. It is sufficient for all the details of life and how to face them and handle them in light of your provision. Father, we're thankful for the grace that we have in salvation, for all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that in him we have been blessed with all the blessings in the heavenly places and that you have given us everything related to life and godliness. Now, Father, we pray as we study your word that you would help us to uh, understand the things that are there and that we can put together uh, the doctrines that you have revealed to us as we compare scripture with scripture, that we may have a greater, fuller understanding of uh, your plans and purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Joel chapter 2, not Joel 2, Acts 2, Acts 2. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of our three basic announcements we all need to be aware of, or two basic announcements we need to be aware of. First of all, this Sunday we're having our annual congregational meeting immediately following the morning worship service. If you're not a member of the church, nevertheless, you're still invited to make sure that uh, you know what's going on and what we're planning and what we're thinking about so that um, you can be aware of uh, everything that's going on in the uh, in the congregation. And then the second thing is the Chafer Conference is coming up on March 8th, 9th, and 10th. And if you would like to help out, volunteer with transportation, see Mark Friedrich if you want to help with the kitchen, uh, food, preparation, and housekeeping, see Ann Wright. And any other area you want to help with, see Connie Balthrop or Glenda uh, Duddleston. So mark that on your calendar starting the afternoon of March 8th, each night, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. Okay, we've been studying on the doctrine of the day of the Lord for the last three or four weeks because this is one of the most significant doctrines in the Old Testament. And the New Testament then develops that. And so we've gone through the Day of the Lord passages, the key passages that are laid out in the Old Testament. We've looked at them in somewhat of a chronological order, although not exclusively, but we've looked at the key passages in all of those uh, books of the Old Testament that you spent so much time reading, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and given a good understanding of what's going on in those books a little bit in Amos and Joel. Now, that's important to understand the day of the Lord as it's revealed in the Old Testament because when the New Testament writers use this term, that's their frame of reference. That's their background. It's not a word that they're assigning new meaning to or a phrase that they're assigning new meaning to. And the importance of understanding the day of the Lord is, as we'll see when we get to the second or third passage we look at this evening, is the way it connects to key 
a key understanding of the prophetic timetable. And as, as we have reached the end of the tribulation in Revelation 19, uh, we're putting together these details of Scripture. And sometimes you may think, well, what in the world does this have to do with us? We're not going to be there in terms of going through the tribulation, but we'll certainly be there when it comes to the second coming of Christ and, the ret- and we'll be returning to the earth with him. But it's important to understand these things because they're part of the Bible. And anything that the Bible addresses in the kind of detail that it addresses in terms of all of this unfulfilled prophecy is important. Almost a fifth of the New Testament, of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. And it's not always easy to put these things together. And what frequently happens when we look at certain of these passages, and certain of these things that have apparent contradictions or they talk about certain events from different vantage points is trying to put these all of these details together so that we we understand the flow and when we get into this both tonight one passage we're looking at tonight and then some things we're going to start getting into next week when we get into the eight stages of the battle of Armageddon really entail, you know, grappling with some details that most people never grapple with. You can look at a hundred commentaries and nobody's e- even acts like they see the problem because they have no clue how to come up with a solution. And so it's left to a few pastors who are willing to beat their heads against the wall for a while to try to figure those things out. And there are different solutions that have been presented and we always build on the understanding of those who have gone before as to how these things are to be understood. And so uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting, and I think you'll enjoy looking at some of these. What we've done is we've looked at the concept of the day of the Lord, recognizing that it is a term that is used in a general sense to refer to various times in history where God has brought judgment upon uh, someone, or some nation in history exerting his sovereign power and his sovereign control. It's used in several times in the Old Testament to refer to the judgment that God brought on the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came in and defeated and destroyed the northern kingdom. And it's used a couple of times, and I think and a couple of these times are are somewhat debated. They're not completely clear in the text as to whether they're referring to 586 B.C. or they're referring to the end-time day of the Lord judgment involving the tribulation. As I pointed out last time, I think most of these that are taken to be 586 are really talking about an end-time judgment, and there's an implied comparison made by the writer of the upcoming judgment in 586 that it is likened to, that's, that's really the background. He's really comparing what will happen soon with that end time, uh, judgment that is usually in about 80% of the uses, that's the reference is the end time judgment. And in the Old Testament, the focal point is really on the judgment that comes, not as much on the, on the, uh, joy and all of the blessings and benefits that come at the end of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is pictured as a time that is that is begins with uh, tribulation and adversity that is compared to the labor pains of a woman who is giving birth. And what she give, what is given birth to is the millennial kingdom, time of unprecedented blessing and joy and happiness in Israel. And that's preceded by this time of judgment because there has to be a judgment of sin and evil that is preceded uh, this particular time, a time of cleansing, so that God can bring, then bring in the kingdom. In the New Testament, the focus sh- it shifts a little bit. And there are about four key passages in the New Testament to look at. And the first reference is in Acts 2:20. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 2, verse 20, 
and I'll just give you a little background so that you can look at this in a more understanding way. This is actually just a simple quote from Joel chapter 2, but it is in the context of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is the birthday of the church. This is the first sermon in the church age given by the Apostle Peter. It took place uh, sometime during the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after Jesus Christ had been crucified, and all of the disciples, uh, the 11 that are left after Judas has already hung himself, these 11 went to the temple in order to observe the this great feast day. There were uh, three major feast days in on the Jewish calendar that required that all adult Jewish males come to Jerusalem and to observe the rituals at the at the temple. I don't know what that was. Am I still on? Okay. So they, as they came to the temple, we're told in the beginning of the chapter there's this huge sound. Uh, rushing wind. Everybody can hear it. It's not something that they, they're hearing in the heads. It's not some internal mystical event. There's this huge noise that comes like a mighty wind, like a tornado. That's the idea of a mighty wind, not just a 20 or 30 mile an hour windstorm, but this is like a tornado. They're, they're hearing a freight train, but they didn't quite know what a freight train sounded like, so they just hear a mighty rushing wind. And then there is this uh, visual event that occurs where tongues at, like fire appear over each of the disciples. Now, some people have taken the view and, and assume because of uh, the reading that there were 120 believers who gathered together in the upper room to uh, choose, make this choice of Matthias as a disciple to replace uh, Judas Iscariot, which I believe was a mistake. But that was 120, and sometimes they see that number, and they try to read that over into chapter 2. Hmm? Maybe. No. Each time it happened, it's when I stepped on the cord. So I'm not going to step on the cord. But those 120 people that came together to choose that disciple included men and women, and they wouldn't have stayed together for a very long time, and the room wasn't that that large of a room, and they would not have been living together for several days in in uh, mixed uh, mixed quarters like that. So they um, it, this involved just the 11, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. This is the initial baptism and filling and indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, and it was signified by the fact that suddenly these 11 could speak in languages that they had never before learned, and in those languages they began to describe, the text says, the great uh, things that God had done. And this would this is just a general phrase, but it would include, of course, the gospel, and they are explaining what had just happened in Jerusalem in terms of the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection. But, of course, there are people who are standing around, and they're just amazed that these uh, unlearned Galileans, a Galilean had the reputation of someone from the backwoods of Arkansas. And, uh, no offense to anybody here who may be from Arkansas, but we all know that every part of the country has certain uh, nearby areas where the people are thought to be not very bright. When I first moved up to Connecticut, I learned from uh, people who lived in southern New England that anyone who crossed the border into Maine would automatically see a 40-point drop in their IQ. Things like that are also said of people in West Virginia or Arkansas or even folks who live in Pasadena, Texas. So everybody has some area they want to pick on. Nazareth was one of those areas, and Galilee was one of those areas. So the Jews in Jerusalem who looked down their nose at everybody said, look, are not all those who speak Galileans? In other words, these are a bunch of rural hicks that have come into Jerusalem. How in the world could they know all of these different languages? And they and and they can speak in the languages of all these different Jews who've come from all over, all over the Middle East and the Roman Empire. And those different nations are listed in verses nine through eleven. Actually, when you break those down, it's only about 
11 different languages, even though they're from different groups, there's about 11 basic root languages there, which would indicate one language per apostle. And as they were asking what did this mean, some were saying they were, well, they're drunk, but I've never known anybody who uh, got drunk and started speaking a language uh, that they had never learned before. So Peter stood up in verse 14, and he says to the men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. These are not drunk, as ye are suggesting, because it's only the third hour of the day. It is third hour of the day. The day began counting the hours at 6 a.m., so it's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's a little too early for them to be drunk. And then in verse 16, he says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes uh, verbatim from the text of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 uh, down to uh, 32, just verbatim. And he begins, what confuses people is when he says, this is what Joel said. It sounds to us as if what he is saying is this is the fulfillment of what Joel said. But if we look at what Joel said, and we read this out, he says, Also on on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's the only point of real similarity is the pouring out of the spirit. In Joel 2.30, we read, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Now, did that happen on the day of Pentecost? No. Didn't happen at all. Joel 2.31, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Did that happen on the day of Pentecost? No, it wasn't even the day of the Lord. Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now that is a point that he is making related to salvation, but that only is part of the passage that's not really the the explanation what we know from studying similar passages that where the new testament quotes an old testament passage in terms of some kind of fulfillment that there are different ways in which this is understood uh, arnold fruchtenbaum in his book in, well in several of his books in his book on israelology as well as his book on the uh, on the uh, footsteps of the messiah and, uh, you know, Bruce didn't have a jacket on. You could see the advertisement on the back of his T-shirt for the, for the book, The Footsteps of the Messiah, as is usual. But in those books, he outlines four different ways in which the rabbis would quote Old Testament passages as fulfillment. And all of these are illustrated in Matthew chapter 2. In one sense, you have a literal historical prophecy, a literal prophecy that is literally fulfilled, such as in in uh, Micah 5.2, that said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And the Messiah was born literally in Bethlehem. Then you have other passages, for example, in um, uh, that talk about the fact that, Je- that when Jesus le- left to go to Egypt and then he returned uh, out of Egypt, I will call my son, and that this is a pattern and there was the historical event that occurred when the Israelites came out of came out of Egypt. And the point there was it's not a prophecy. The event in the Old Testament of the Jews returning from Egypt wasn't a prophecy. It was a history, but that historical event served as a as a pattern or a type or foreshadowing of what would happen in the life of the young Jesus when the family returned from Egypt. And then you have other cases where there are points of similarity. But again, the original event was not a historic, I mean, was not a prophecy. For example, in Jeremiah, when Jeremiah writes of the, of the widows in uh, Ramah, which is north of Jerusalem, weeping over their, their sons who are being taken into captivity, at the time of the Babylonian captivity, that verse is then applied by Matthew to the weeping of the mothers in Bethlehem, not in Ramah, but in Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem, when Herod killed all of the infants. And what 
Matthew is saying is not that this was a prof, literal prophecy that is now being literally fulfilled, but that this was a pattern or a, uh, a foreshadowing that occurred at this event that was a literal historical event in another location for another reason, but it is like what we're seeing here. And that's what we're seeing in, in Acts 2. Peter is not saying this is the fulfillment of the Joel prophecy because that's not being fulfilled until the end of the tribulation period. He is saying this is like that, that just as there will be this tremendous outpouring of God the Holy Spirit at the end of the tribulation upon especially Israel but all believers, and that this is part of the new covenant that was promised by God for Israel, that this that you're seeing today on the day of Pentecost is like that. And the reality is that if the Jews had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, when he came offering himself as the king, uh, preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand, if they had accepted him and if they had turned to him and turned to God, then the day of Pentecost would have been, hypothetically, if they had accepted Christ, the day of Pentecost would have been in the fulfillment of the typology and the feast days would have been the time when the Joel 2 passage would have been literally fulfilled and the kingdom would have begun. But see, they rejected him, and so rather than the kingdom beginning at that time with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Israel, there was a new emphasis on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and a new thing was created the body of Christ, and a new dispensation began that had been unforeseen in the Old Testament and had not been prophesied in the Old Testament. So Peter is quoting that in order to show this similarity of events. And in the middle of it, that's he's just quoting Joel 2.31, as I have up here on the screen. We've highlighted that one verse in reference to the day of the Lord. Now, when we looked at Joel 2 and we studied that, we saw that in Joel chapter 2, the focus on the day of the Lord was divine judgment. And in the heavens, there would be these uh, astrophysical signs that would take place, that the sun would be uh, darkened, the moon would be turned to blood, there would be earthquakes upon the earth and these other geophysical and astrophysical signs that would take place at the time of the great and awesome day of the Lord, which is related to the end of the tribulation period, the battle or the campaign of Armageddon, which was really composed of a number of different events, probably will last three or four months. And that is uh, the what gives birth to the millennial kingdom. Then we saw in Joel chapter 3... And since this is relevant to what we're going to get to later on, why don't you just turn back quickly to Joel 3. And I just want to remind you of this as a setup in preparation for where we're going to go, that in Joel 3 we saw that the day of the Lord also relates to the beginning of the millennial kingdom and the blessing that comes upon Israel. And in Joel 3, 1, we read, For behold, in those days and at that time, that is, at the time of this deliverance of Israel at the end of the tribulation period, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, on Sunday morning, we studied that, that the valley of Jehoshaphat is the place where the Israelites gathered together after they had had this remarkable victory that God gave Jehoshaphat down south as he was fighting this invasion from the Edomites. God gave him a, a tremendous victory, and it took them four days to kind of clean everything up and head back to Jerusalem. And just outside of Jerusalem, they gathered together in this valley, and they had a huge time of sacrifice and praise to the Lord for the victory, and that valley at that place was called the Valley of Barakah, the Valley of Blessing. And that is the same place that's being spoken of here, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So it will become a place of judgment 
after at the end of the tribulation. This is one of the several judgments that occur at the end of the tribulation, and this is also known as the sheep and goat judgment, the judgment of the Gentiles in relation to how they treated uh, the Jews during the tribulation period. I will enter into uh, judgment with them there, Joel 3, 2, on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They've cast lots for my people, have given a boy's payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine. This is all related to the horrible things that take place during the tribulation, uh, during the tribulation period. And then if you look down to, uh, a little later on in the chapter, verse 12, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow. All that imagery is picked up in Revelation 16, 17, and 18 at the end of the uh, tribulation. Verse 14, multitudes come for the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark. Notice that in verse 15. The stars will diminish their Brightness, the Lord will roar from Zion, utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. And then in verse 18, and it will come to pass in that day. What is that day? It's the day of the Lord. In that day, the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. Again, it's a picture of now, of now tremendous blessing and prosperity in the land of Israel. So the day of the Lord refers to both the judgment period and the subsequent period of blessing in the millennial kingdom. Okay? All that Peter's doing in Joel 2 is quoting that verse in relation to its historic meaning of the great end-time judgment that precedes the coming of the kingdom. Now, the next phrase where we have the phrase day of the Lord is in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, and it's actually the phrase, the day of the Lord Jesus. And this is different from the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord Jesus is similar to Paul's terminology of the day of Christ. And the day of Christ in the New Testament, for the most part, is a reference to the rapture, not to the day of the Lord, not to the Old Testament judgments that come at the end of the tribulation period. So we have to maintain that distinction between the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. Now, there's three places in Philippians where this phrase is used. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. And in that context, he is challenging and encouraging the Philippians to continue to press forward in their spiritual growth until the end of the church age. There is a end point beyond which we're not going to be concerned about our spiritual growth and going forward. So it's uh, begin to continue to live until the day of uh, Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.6. So that defines the concept. And then the word phrase is used again in verse 10 where Paul says, that you may approve... In other words, he's, he's, this verse comes in the middle of a prayer. He says, this I pray in verse 9. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment for the purpose that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, until the rapture. And so you have these two phrases that are these two words there, sincere and without offense, which is talking about the spiritual life of the believer as he pursues his spiritual growth and maturity. Notice how practical this is. The day of Christ is a reminder that there is a judgment coming after the rapture at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is the same context that we have when Paul comes back to this in Philippians chapter 2. So if you just turn the page you'll find the next example 
and Philippians 2.16, saying, Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that is, at the judgment seat of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, what has he been saying? We'll skip back to verse 2, and we'll pick up the context. I mean, verse 12. Pick up the context. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. See, it's easy to be obedient and to have a facade of obedience when the pastor's around or when the apostle Paul's in town. But once they leave, well, we can go back to business as uh, as normal. So he says, I've heard that you have obeyed not only when I'm there, but also when I'm not there. And then he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he's not talking about working to be justified phase one salvation. The word salvation is used in three different senses in the New Testament. One has to do with being saved from the penalty of sin, what we would also refer to as justification, phase one salvation. When a person believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, at that instant they are transferred from death to life, they're given eternal life, and they are saved from the eternal penalty of sin in the lake of fire. Phase two is being saved from the power of sin, its ongoing spiritual maturity or spiritual growth, which we refer to as experiential or progressive sanctification. So phase one is saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two is saved from the power of sin, and that comes by studying God's Word under God the Holy Spirit, applying it in your life, and growing to spiritual maturity. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Phase three happens when we die. We're saved from the presence of sin at glorification. We're absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, and there's no more struggle with sin. So what Paul is talking about here in terms of salvation is that second usage related to spiritual growth, progressive sanctification. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit. It is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And then he gives a very practical challenge. Do all things without complaining and disputing. And the first word there for complaining means to gripe and complain and murmur and have a bad attitude about everything. It's the Greek word gangusmas, which means to grumble, to murmur, to mutter under your breath about something. Well, that's, that's the idea. Don't complain when life gets tough. And the second word is a word that means to just always argue and debate and dispute with somebody over what is going on in your life or whatever it is you're asked to do and always just generally being a pain in the rear. So Paul says, do all things. He Notice there's no asterisk there where you can go down to the footnote and find the exceptions. No exceptions. All things without complaining and disputing that you may become for the purpose. There is a reason for this command. It's not just an isolated command. There's a reason for it that you may become blameless. Actually, the way the, uh, this is a good translation of the Greek. It's better in the New King James than it is in the in the uh, New American Standard. It has the idea of coming to be that you may become blameless and harmless. It's progressive sanctification. So rather than griping and complaining about everything, you're going to have a change of character brought about by God the Holy Spirit in conjunction with obedience to the Word so that now nobody's going to level fall. Nobody's going to say, you know, they're just such a crybaby. They whine and complain about everything. Well, they're not going to say that. You're going to be blameless and harmless. And the word for blameless means somebody who is uh, is not a violator of the law, someone nobody can bring a charge against. Nobody's going to be able to say they are just, I don't want to have, ask them to do this. All they do is complain and, and whine about it. So they are blameless and harmless in the New King James really means faultless, that no legal 
charge could be brought against them. They are not at fault. You can't go to the scripture and say, well, they don't do this, they don't do that. They are uh, legally not at fault. They are innocent in a legal sense, not guilty. And that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So this indicates that the believer, by his behavior, because he's not a whiner and he's not a complainer, he's going to stand out in the midst of a human viewpoint, pagan society that is self-absorbed and always focusing on uh, their own uh, issues in life and constantly griping and complaining about them. So there's going to be this contrast in terms of the behavior of the believer in the midst of unbelievers, among whom, Paul says, you shine as lights in the world. Why? Because you hold fast, it's a causal participle there, because you hold fast the word of life, that is Bible doctrine, so that I may rejoice, this is what Paul says, see, if you do this, that means you've responded to what I've been teaching, and when I stand with you before the judgment seat of Christ, I will be proud of you, and I will be able to rejoice because of your spiritual growth and your testimony uh, before the Lord Jesus Christ, before the angels, and before the world, and I will not have run in vain. In other words, I will not have been conducting my ministry in vain or labored in vain. And so the day of Christ there has to do with the uh, judgment seat of Christ, not the day of the Lord, uh, not the rapture per se, but that which comes after it. So that shows that the day of Christ is different from the day of the Lord. Now, the next usage that we want to look at is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. These two passages are uh, among the most significant in terms of end-time prophecy, 1 Thessalonians 5 and then 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.2. 2. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we have a shift that occurs from the previous chapter which focused on the rapture. That's the famous key passage on the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. Paul had taught in Thessalonica for just a few months, and he moved on. But among all the things he taught, he taught them prophecy. He taught them about the day of the Lord. Now, that's important because there are people, Christians today, say, why do we need to know this? I just need to know how to have a happy marriage. I need to know how to handle my bank account. I need to know this. I need to know that. I need a job. Uh, we're just going to learn about God so I can uh, rub the Bible like it's a magic lamp and somehow God's going to solve all my problems. When Paul came into a neighborhood and he evangelized and led people to the Lord and put them together in a Bible class, one of the... Uh, important things he taught in a short period of time was on prophecy, on the rapture, and on the day of the Lord. And after he had done this, after he left, the people were still a little confused, and they thought when some people, some Christians died, they, they were so much expecting the Lord to return before that happened, that was wrong application on their part, that they didn't know what happened to believers when they died. They were still confused. And so Paul says in 1 Thess 4.13, I don't want you to be ignorant brethren, or ignorant brethren, uh, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And he's not talking about people who are sitting on the back row at church on Sunday morning. He's talking about believers who have uh, who have pa passed away, gone to be with the Lord. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. Now, the last thing he says, after four verses of talking about the rapture, is, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the rapture is important so that we can comfort other believers at the time of death of one of their loved ones. And then he goes on to say in chapter 5, but concerning the times and the seasons... And he uses the same two Greek words for times and seasons, chronos and kairos, that Jesus used in Acts chapter 1. In Acts 1, 5, just as Jesus is getting ready to lift off and ascend into heaven, 
the disciples are there, and they say, Lord, is it this the time when you're going to bring in the kingdom? And the Lord says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. So just 15 years before Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, 15, 20 years before he wrote that, Jesus told the, the uh, 11 disciples, you don't need to know anything about the times or the seasons. 15, 20 years later, Paul is saying, I've taught you all about the times or the seasons. What happened in between is the initial revelation that came to the apostles as part of church age doctrine. It, what Jesus was saying in Acts 1 to the disciples was, it's not the time yet for you to know these things, but because Paul uses the same terminology and he's already taught them uh, this, it's obvious that now it is appropriate for church-age believers to know about the times and the seasons. So Paul said, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. Implication, because... Verse 2, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So he obviously taught them about the day of the Lord and the doctrine of the day of the Lord. And in that, he used the comparison, the metaphor of a thief in the night. It's going to be unexpected and sudden when a thief breaks into a home. You don't expect it. You're lying there in bed asleep, and you're relaxed, and you think your security system is working. Then all of a sudden, you hear the door get kicked in, or you hear a window get broken, and suddenly you're aware somebody's there, and you're taken completely by surprise. That's the thrust of the metaphor is it is something that is sudden, something unexpected, and something that is surprising. And the day of the Lord will come to unbelievers in that way. Believers know all about it. But unbelievers will not be expecting it. And so it will come as a complete surprise because they have deluded themselves into thinking that it's not going to happen to them, that there aren't bad guys out there, that there's nothing that is going to happen because we live in complete, wonderful security and the government is going to take care of everything. Verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, when they have deluded themselves into thinking that there is now peace in the world, that there is, they have finally achieved this world peace and harmony, and they all are going to bed listening to the radio play, We Are the World, suddenly something is going to happen and surprise and shock them completely. Sudden destruction comes upon when, when the earth dwellers, as we studied in Revelation, the unbelievers have finally achieved that one world global government that brings in world peace and everything they think they have. Just as they finally think they have arrived, it's all going to explode around them, and they will lose it all. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Have we seen that imagery before? That's the imagery that's used in Isaiah 13 related to the day of the Lord, that it is like the pains of labor that a woman has before giving birth. So suddenly these labor pains come, and they shall not escape. But contrast, verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. This is not going to surprise you. You're not in darkness. You're in the light. Verse 5, For you are, we are, all, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night and darkness. Contrast between believer and unbeliever. And then Paul says, Therefore, let's not fall asleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The word there for sober doesn't emphasize the lack of imbibing in alcoholic beverages as much as it does having clear, precise thinking ability, objective thought. Now, it's contrasted with being drunk in the next verse, but sobriety, the word for sober in the that's translated sober in the New Testament, emphasizes the ability to have clear, objective thought, whereas those who have been, are drunk, the Bible never prohibits using or drinking alcoholic beverages, just being drunk. It says, for those who 
who sleep and sleep at night, verse 7, those who get drunk are drunk at night. So he's just, he's just developing this contrast between light and darkness. In light, there's clear thought because you have revelation. Light and revelation always go together in Scripture. We, our thinking is illuminated by the truth of God's Word. You are all sons of light and sons, or rather, uh, verse 6, that, Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, that is, thinking clearly on the basis of Bible doctrine, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Notice, he's taken the whole doctrine of the day of the Lord to show this has to do with your real-time, present-time spiritual growth so that we understand doctrine today and we grow and mature uh, in the Lord. And then he says in verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Wrath, as we've seen, is a key word that's always used in day of the Lord passages. It is the judgment of God upon unbelieving humanity that occurs during the tribulation period. God did not appoint us to wrath. Why? The church isn't going to go through the tribulation. We're going to be raptured before the tribulation. We are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation, that is deliverance, which comes at the rapture, deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, that is whether we're alive or dead, sleep, wake and sleep being a euphemism for being alive or dead, We should live together with him. Therefore, notice the practical application again. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, so just as you also are doing. So the doctrine of the day of the Lord isn't just some sort of abstract uh, discussion about what's going to happen at the end times and how the tribulation is going to work its way out, but we have to understand there is judgment coming. And as Paul says in Philippians, there's the judgment seat of Christ coming for believers. And because of that, we need to realize how important the present time is in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth so that we are prepared for that. Not that we as believers will go through the tribulation because we will be raptured first to the judgment seat of Christ, but others will go through the tribulation. And so we don't know when this will occur, so we need to be about the business of communicating the gospel to unbelievers so that they will not go through that time period. Now turn over a couple of pages to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, and we will see the n- next use of this phrase. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though, and the New King James and King James have the day of Christ, but New American Standard, NIV, other other translations have day of the Lord. And in looking at the evidence, the manuscript evidence, where there is a discrepancy there, some have day of Christ, others have day of the Lord, It is a better reading based on context and some other factors that this should read the day of the Lord, not the day of Christ. So he is saying to them, don't be upset because someone has come along and said the raptures occurred and you're now in the tribulation in the day of the Lord. Don't let somebody fool you into thinking that so that you get uh, all upset as if the as if you're living in the tribulation. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the day of the Lord, will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now this word translated falling away is the Greek word apostasia, from which we get our English word apostasy. Some passages will actually, or some translations will actually just transliterate this as the apostasy. Now, the noun form apostasia comes from a Greek root uh, uh, verb, aphistemi. And aphistemi has the basic meaning of to go away, to withdraw, to depart, or to fall away. The initial meaning of this word would would be applied in some cases to a ship leaving a port 
or we would say today to an airplane taking off, or if you're getting ready to leave on a trip, you're going, going to depart. That's the root meaning of this word, is to depart. So it came to be applied to a departure from the truth, which is what we would call apostasy today. But the root idea is departure. So it is this verse, there's a lot of debate among, among some people on this verse, but many, um, many scholars who understand the Greek, many dispensationalists, teach that the falling away here is the rapture. And what Paul is saying, let no one deceive you, for that day, that is, the day of the Lord will not come until the departure comes first. The rapture of the church comes first, and the man of sin is revealed. That happens. That's the order. There's the rapture. The Antichrist becomes revealed. That's the man of sin, the uh, son of perdition. And this occurs all after the rapture. Then he goes on to describe the characteristics of the Antichrist as the one who will oppose and exalt himself to be worshipped as God. But that, as we've seen, doesn't occur until the midpoint of the tribulation in the, in the time of the abomination of desolation. And so he's basically warning them, don't be deceived by somebody who tells you that the day of the Lord has already occurred. So what we see from all of these usage is the day of the Lord is used about 80% of the time to refer to that period we call Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation. And based on Joel 3, it refers to the time period of the millennial kingdom. Now, we have to keep that in mind because the next usage we're going to look at is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And there is a certain amount of debate over this particular passage. And I've heard an alternate view for a number of years. In fact, I know one pastor who is quite good, quite a good student of the Word, and I think he might have done his um, master's thesis at uh, Dallas Seminary on this particular uh, topic because I have known over the years at pastors' conferences and we'll get off in a corner and he'll start bending your ear about the meaning of the day of the Lord in first and second Peter three. And unless you really have done the kind of work that I've taken you through the last three or four weeks, you, you just, okay, that's great. I understand what you're trying to say. When I'm studying it, I will call you and we will talk about this. I haven't done that, but I finally think I understand this position and it's a position that Dr. Fruchtenbaum also takes which is what caused me to sort of step back and reevaluate this. I'm not sure what my final conclusion on this is at this point because I, I don't like to jump into things uh, too suddenly when it comes to an important topic or verse like this. So I'm going to let you see what the issues are. In Second Peter chapter three, Peter is talking about the second coming. Of Christ. That's the context. He says back in um, verse 3, he talks about knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, we studied this phrase, the last days. We studied the beginning of Hebrews. There's two different last day periods in, in the Scripture. There's the last days related to Israel and the last days related to the church age. And the last days of the church age are basically the whole church age because you have these various cycles of the same kinds of problems throughout. And so Peter is saying in the last days there are going to be people who come along walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Jesus said he was coming back. Look, it's been a 1,000 years or it's been 1,500 years. It's been 2,000 years. He's not coming back. Well, you Christians are crazy thinking that Jesus is coming back. Uh, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, everything's the same. There, there's, what's implied here is the statement that God doesn't interfere in human history. Extreme deism at best, uh, atheistic evolutionary uniformitarianism at worst. And then, Peter goes on to say, for this they willfully forget, these are unbelievers, they just are in total self, 
uh, self-denial. For this, our, our denial of the truth here. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded by water. That's the flood of Noah. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved. Listen, this is, I think, a very important passage. Preserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Now, is that referring to Armageddon, the tribulation judgments in Armageddon, or is that referring to the final uh, Gog-Magog revolution that occurs at the end of the Millennial Kingdom? That's the question. But, beloved, he says, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. In other words, time isn't a factor with God. That's all that is saying. It's not a mathematical formula for figuring out chronology. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is extending human history to give unbelievers the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Because once he says, game over, that's it. Those who haven't responded don't have a second chance. But then he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, Day of the Lord means what? Every place we've seen this, if it's not historical, what, to what does it refer? It refers to the tribulation period, except for that passage in Joel where it includes the millennial kingdom. But this, this view that I'm talking about is a view that this is talking about not the end of the millennium, but the end of the tribulation. And so in this view... Day of the Lord is emphasized as consistently being a term, and everywhere else in the New Testament it is a term for the tribulation period only. That's one strong point. So when we look at their arguments, argument number one is that the day of the Lord is used consistently in the New Testament for the tribulation period. The Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's the second point. The metaphor thief in the night is used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3, as a reference to the period of the, of the, uh, uh, the day of the Lord and the tribulation period. It comes as a surprise, sudden surprise to the unbelievers. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Now, the view that I've always held and always been taught is that that refers to the destruction of the present heavens and the present earth at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's a view that most of you have been taught as well. That, and so this would then mean this, the day of the Lord would have reference to the end, a judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom rather than the tribulation judgment. And in this view, the emphasis is on the heavens will pass away with great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. But their view is that, skip down to point four, that the earth is burned up in the tribulation, misspelling, judgments, and between two-thirds and three-fourths of the earth's surface is burned up during the tribulation period. Now, when the other thing they point out is that the Old Testament background in passages, this is point number three, uh, in Isaiah 34.4, in connection to Matthew 24.29 and Zechariah 14.6, the idea of the heavens passing away is within the tribulation period of the day of the Lord. Zechariah 14.6 says it shall come to pass in that day, that there will be no light, the lights will diminish. That is specifically in context when Jesus returns to Jerusalem's second coming. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 24:29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's second coming. So, their fifth point is that when you use the phrase new heavens and new earth, you have to see its precedent in Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, which is clearly talking about the millennial kingdom. It is not talking about a new created heavens and earth. And so as we go on to read in, in uh, 2 Peter 
3.11, Therefore, since all things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and kindliness? Notice the application again. Then in verse 12, Looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, the view that I have always taught and believed is that this is when the present heavens and earth are completely destroyed through some kind of nuclear uh, fission of some sort, and everything just completely vaporizes, and God creates a new heaven and new earth. But when we get to this passage in Isaiah, chapter 65, and we'll close and wrap up with this, in Isaiah chapter 65, so we turn there. This is what we read, starting in verse 17. Now, the whole context prior to this is dealing with uh, various uh, uh, judgments that have taken place related to Israel. Now, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, that's a great promise to remember. When God creates the new heavens and the new earth, whether that's the millennial kingdom or whether that is eternity, he says the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. You will not remember this life at all. It's going to be, the slate's going to be wiped clean. We're not going to remember anything about this. That's a great promise. The former things shall not be remembered to come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. Uh, I will rejoice in Jerusalem, joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Why? Because that's what's been going on during the tribulation. No more shall an infant live just a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. But the child shall die a hundred years old. He's still going to die. See, in heaven, they're not going to die. But he's saying a child shall die 100 years old. In other words, life's going to be so long, you're still going to be considered just a baby at 100. Uh, the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. That is, they'll be judged. They shall build houses, inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit in the land. This is all millennial terminology. And then we come down to verse 24. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer while they are still speaking, I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. That's the millennial kingdom. Now, the problem that I see with this, with this view is that it doesn't take into account Joel 3, which is the day of the Lord applied to the millennial kingdom, it does not, I, at this point, I do not understand how it adequately deals with verse 7 of Second Peter 3, 7, but the heavens and the earth are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly, ungodly men, which seems to indicate a final destruction of the earth, not just a, uh, the Lord coming back at the millennium, even though two-thirds or three-fourths of the earth has been destroyed by fire. It's not just... Uh, preparing the earth or or reinvigorating the earth for the millennial kingdom, it seems to be the end. And then in Revelation 20.21, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, not as the millennial kingdom, but what happens after the millennial kingdom. So I, I can see their argument to some degree now, which I've never seen before, but it still seems to me that the day of the Lord here would refer to the end of the millennial kingdom and the destruction, the final judgment of sin that occurs there in that Gog-Magog rebellion that Satan leads and the destruction then of the present heavens and earth and establishment of a new heavens and earth. So we've covered the day of the Lord, and next time we'll come back and we'll begin to focus on the eight stages of the Battle of Armageddon, and there are some real fun things to begin Uh, trying to unravel and put together at the very beginning. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to recognize it's not just some sort of academic theological pursuit to figure out what the day of the Lord means, but to realize that there is judgment coming, and again and again and again, passages that talk about the day of the Lord are challenging us to recognize that there is accountability, there is a judgment coming, 
for believers, the judgment seat of Christ. And so because we know this is coming, we should pay attention to our present life, pay attention to our spiritual life and spiritual growth at this time, that we are prepared because we never know when our life in this earth is over, whether we are taken out through disease now, tonight, tomorrow, next year, or the next decade, or whether we are suddenly raptured to be with you today, tonight, tomorrow, the next week. We need to be prepared and ready because that judgment evaluation is coming. Challenge us with these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.